Scripture says, Judges 15, beginning at verse 16. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and he called the place Ramoth Lehi. Literally, it means the high place of a jawbone. So aptly named, right? Ramoth Lehi. And then he became very thirsty. Somebody say thirsty. And his thirst prompted what he did next. So he cried out to the Lord. Somebody say he cried out. And he said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the enemy. And so God responded to his cry. And he split the hollow place that is in Lehi and water came out and Samson drank and his spirit returned. And he was revived by the water from God that was prompted by a cry. Therefore, he called its name Enhekor, which is in Lehi to this day. And I'd like to read that last verse 19 from the New Living because it picks up on what that name means. That spring that came forth out of Lehi, that high place. The Bible says, so God caused water to gush out of a hollow and Samson was revived as he drank. And then he named that place the spring of the one who cried out. I've just come to tell you the message is very simple tonight. But if there is a dry place in your life, if you are dissatisfied with barrenness, if you will cry out, there is a spring of refreshing that can spring up in your life and in this place today, and it will refresh your soul and it will revive your life if you will but cry out to God. Can we do that right now? Can we lift our voices in prayer and cry out to the Lord? Come on, why don't you pray a prayer that God would speak to you across this place. I'm going to put the microphone down, but can you just pray boldly, passionately, desperately to God? In the name of the Lord, God, we come before you. God, hungry for the move of your spirit, Lord, we come before you, desiring that you would touch down. Lord, let there be springs of living water in this place and in our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Oh, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Somebody speak that name of Jesus tonight. Come on, why don't we worship the name of Jesus one last time. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah to the King. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. I'll never forget several years ago, probably a Thanksgiving dinner, maybe a Christmas dinner, we were all at my grandparents' house, 42 Broadview Avenue, if you've been there. It's almost an iconic place. It certainly is in our family. And I think the meal had wound up during that particular gathering. I was younger, and uh, at that particular time, there was an apartment in the lower level, and my aunt and uncle, they lived there. And, and my uncle John had showed me on his amazing, I mean, to me it was amazing, it was an iMac computer, and this was back in the day, I mean, this was a picture tube iMac. Do you know what a picture tube is? It's like those TVs that Value Village won't even take from you because they're so worthless, right? This was the kind of, of computer monitor. It was an all-in-one. It was translucent blue. And, I, and he had showed me this game. It was like, a, I don't remember the name, but all I remember is that I was, uh, 
It was like I was a marble and you had to guide this marble down a track, don't fall off the edge, get to the end of the course, and you had won. And, and again, dinner had wound up and I, I guess I just wanted a break from my family or something and I snuck off. Just kidding, if you're here in my family, it's a joke. So I snuck off, I went downstairs and I, and I get on this computer, I start playing the game, just passing a few moments and and, uh, you know, then I got tired of doing that. I figured I might as well go join the festivities again. And so I go to leave this room and I turn to the right to head toward the stairs to go back up. And there standing in my way was the devil incarnate, the cat, Sully. They have photos of Sully. I don't know if they're on the screen, but they're going to show you Sully. Now, Sully, he, he's dead now. God rest his soul. But Sully didn't like me very much. If he was sitting in the hallway, a four-foot-wide hallway, I wouldn't walk by. You know, that's, it was just a difficult, a difficult relationship we had. It was, it was like a hate-hate kind of thing, you know. I'd walk by, he'd hiss, he'd show his teeth and, and, and reveal his claws. And so we, we didn't really get along. And, and I think perhaps the reason that we didn't get along was because when he was a kitten and had just been brought home by my grandparents, you know, I, I was around a lot and... And I had heard, and, and kind of the way that they were doing things in training the cat was, you know, if you spray a cat with a squirt bottle, that's kind of like the way that you teach them, no, don't do that. And I was an overzealous cat trainer. <laughs> and, uh, and I would take the spray bottle, and I was a little trigger happy, you know what I mean? And I would just, you know, any little thing, I was just like, no, 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 don't. And... Uh, <laughs> I think it left an indelible impression on, on poor little demon-possessed Sully. You know, uh, I don't know if you remember, at, at the, uh, in the early 2001s, there was a film from Disney called Monsters Incorporated. It was kind of a funny film. Well, well, this cat and his brother, Mike, Sully and Mike, they were named after the two main characters from this film about monsters. He was aptly named after a monster, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sully, and he didn't like me, and so... He, he somehow got wind of the fact that I was downstairs, and he followed me. And he perched himself just outside this room, again, blocking a, a small four-foot-wide hallway, and I could not get by. It was like this force field of a cat in front of me, and I was paralyzed with fear, and I went back into the room, and, and I just was wishing, in, wishing him away and, and going into deep intercessory prayer. I mean, you got to understand, I did not, I was, I was terrified of this cat. I'm not afraid of cats, but this cat was more than a cat. It, it was a cat, you know, uh, again, demon possessed, whatever. So, so I go back out, he's still there. And, uh, you know, like I was trying the normal tactics. I was like, get, you know, and, and just faking like I was going to kick him in the face. And I'm sorry, Peter, if you're watching, don't, don't uh, get, get mad. And uh, you guys, I lost you right there, all the animal lovers. You're gone. It was a, I never kicked the cat. I just squirted the cat. But if I needed him out of the way, sometimes you got to do what you got to do and pretend you're going to. Okay, never mind. So anyway, I did what was my only option left to do in that moment. Nobody was around. Everybody's up in the family room doing their thing. And all I, all I knew to do was just to start screaming at the top of my lungs, not at the cat, but just trying to get the attention of somebody. And so I said, hey, Grammy, Grampy, anybody? And nobody came. And so I did the next best thing. I don't know if I ever sent it, but I remember I went back in the room and I shut the door 
And when I had left the upstairs, I think my father had flipped open his laptop to check his email. And I thought, this is my only hope. <laughs> and so I got on the computer and I drafted an email. Dearest father, please be advised that a demon has trapped me in the basement. Send help, Matt. Again, I don't know if I sent it, but I know I drafted it. He'd have to check his email. It's probably still there if I did. But you know what? Uh, I, I don't know if it was the email or maybe it was just the fact that I cried out in my moment of desperation. After that, I went back out into the hallway and praised God the Lord had delivered me from my calamity and the cat was gone, never to be seen. Well, not quite, but anyway, he was gone and I made it back upstairs for dessert and everybody said, praise God. We're talking tonight about restoring the cry. Somebody say restoring the cry. Now, the book of Judges, it introduces us to a well-known biblical character named Samson. You're familiar with him, most likely, Samson and Delilah and all that. But his story begins when the Bible tells us not about him, but rather about his parents. It starts in Judges 13, verse 2. The Bible simply says, plainly says, In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was one, one unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. Now, when you think about the hardship of barrenness, even in our modern-day barrenness and infertility issues, they're difficult for those that have to walk through them. But certainly in that ancient Far East culture, all the more. You, know, you would expect that, that there would be more commentary about Manoah and his wife. Because in that day, barrenness was a stain on a woman's reputation. Back then, to be barren was to suggest that you had perhaps less value than, you know, a, your fertile counterpart. You know, polygamy was another thing in that day, something we moved on from. Good idea. But, you know, the more fertile wife was more favored because she was able to help grow the family and, and you were not. And so barrenness was, was a big cultural, societal issue. And barren wombs are a frequent occurrence in the scripture. And if you're a Bible lover, you already know this. The first three generations in Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three had barren wives. Sarai was barren. Genesis 11 tells us that, Abram's wife. Genesis 25 tells us that Rebekah was barren. That's Isaac's wife. Genesis 30, Rachel was barren. That's Jacob's wife. Judges chapter 13, as we read just a moment ago, Manoah's wife, Samson's parents, they were barren. 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah was barren. That's Elkanah's wife. And Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, Elizabeth, wife of Zacharias the priest, was barren. Parents of John the Baptist. The barren womb, it recurs so often, and it is what you would call in Scripture a type scene. Scholars and theologian, theologians call things like this type scenes. And type scenes are given scenarios that are referenced so much that they automatically evoke certain feelings and thoughts. And when you come across any given type scene, there's like this baseline of understanding that, that you should have as a Bible reader, right? The reader becomes familiar with these type scenes. And when you compare and contrast various type scenes together, you can glean principles from the Word of God. There's various type scenes that appear in Scripture. 
In addition to the barren woman, we often read of men meeting their wives at a well. Another example. Abraham's servant discovers Isaac's future wife at a well in Genesis 24. The patriarch Jacob first encounters Rachel at a well in Genesis 29. The deliverer Moses sees his future bride after he had fled from Egypt and found his way to Midian. And he finds his bride and her sisters at the local watering hole in Exodus chapter 2. And so wells, they're a type scene and they're often associated with marriage. Men in the ancient world, they knew that they could look for a wife, a spouse at a well since women were often tasked with providing water for the family. And so it's no surprise that when you go to John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well, and, and, and of course it's not a match made in heaven for them, but it's no surprise that they discuss marriage, right? It's a type scene. And Jesus says, you've been married five times, and the one you're with now, you're not married, you're in, you're in a mess, right? It's a type scene. Wells and marriage. And although shocked to see Jesus speaking with the Samaritan ancient readers, they recognized the connection between wells and matrimony. So we say a type scene. And so back to the barren womb. The, the barren womb is one of the most prevalent type scenes in Scripture. And each time you come across it, you will find like wells are often connected to marriage. The barren womb is almost every time accompanied by a cry of desperation to God. Readers of the Bible recognize several type scenes involving barren women. And these type scenes usually involve crying out to God for a child. Isaac called upon God, praying that the Lord would give children to Rebekah in Genesis 25, 21. Rachel so desperately desired children that she implored her husband Jacob, give me children or else I die in Genesis 30 verse 1. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah cried to God to give her children so that she would no longer endure the smirks and the disdain of her rival Peninnah. And she was so desperate for children that when she was praying, Eli the priest thought she was drunk desperation, a cry to God from a barren state. But when you read the story of Manoah and his wife's barrenness, the scripture doesn't say very much at all about the situation. Again, when, when, you, when you compare all the rest, you will find a cry. And in stark contrast, you read this passage in Judges chapter 13 about Manoah and his wife. And the expected cry to God for a child is absent from the story. The text simply states, and his wife was barren and bare not. No cry of desperation whatsoever. No evident desire to see their situation change. They almost seem content in their barrenness. The cry is missing. And I could say it this way, the lack of a cry is deafening to the reader that is perceptive. And so you ask the question, you know, why, why did this happen? How would a, a couple such as this in the household of faith, a part of the nation of Israel, the people of God, how, how could they get to such a place of seeming complacency? Well, several verses in Judges leading up to this moment in time. They record that the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. 
In fact, Gideon so greatly feared the Lord's wrath that he pleaded, let not thine anger be hot against me. Judges chapter 6. And although God showed Gideon mercy, each other instance that speaks of the heat of the Lord's anger, it ended with punishment. God gave the people into the hands of the spoilers. God refused to drive out the remaining nations. And God allowed them to fall into the hands of a Mesopotamian king every time the heat of the Lord's anger is mentioned. And the worst problem, however, it occurs in Judges chapter 10 when the Lord sold them into the hands of the Philistines, the enemy that Samson would eventually face against. And God allows them to fall into the hands of the Philistines and the children of Ammon. And this double whammy of oppression and vexation, it lasted for 18 long years. The Israelites were in great distress due to the all-encompassing nature of this devastating situation. Everywhere they looked, they saw trouble. On every hand, there was oppression. And so they did what they had done up to this point. If you read the book of Judges and notice the cyclical nature of the narrative. Have you noticed that? How, how they would be in a time of peace and then they would turn to idolatrous false gods and then God would send an oppressor and then they would be in bondage and then they would cry to God and then God would send a deliverer or a judge and, and they would be raised up. They would defeat the enemy and then it, God's people Israel would be in peace until they started again. I mean, it's many, many times around the merry-go-round in the book of Judges, this this round and round it goes. Okay, so, so here they are. They're in oppression again. And they begin to cry to the Lord for deliverance. In Judges 10. This time, however, the Israelites had so frustrated the grace of God that, that he seemingly is refusing to help them. Judges 10, 11. The Lord replied, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians? And he gives them his track record. The Ammonites, the the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites. When they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help, and your cry worked, and I rescued you. And Yet despite all this, you've abandoned me, and you have served other gods. And so, right now, I'm not rescuing, rescuing you anymore. You've chosen your other gods. You've made your bed, now go lay in it, as it were. He said, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen and and let's see if they will rescue you in your hour of distress. And so evidently the Israelites, they pushed God a little too far and and in this moment in time, he he said, I'm not going to pay attention. I'm not going to hear your cries. And, And it's not that God was no longer merciful. It's that the Israelites had so established themselves in idolatry and there was not true repentance And God had simply become their get-out-of-jail-free card, as it were. And they were trying to use it right now. God help us. But it wasn't sincere. They had so set themselves on the side of false gods. And he said, you've chosen them, go to them. It reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand, it's not shortened that it cannot save. God's ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. But it's your iniquities that have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. This seems to be the state of Israel in Judges chapter 10. 
They had put their faith in deaf idols that could neither hear them nor deliver them. God had become weary with Israel because they only repented in order to be delivered, not to draw nearer to him. And they never effected true change up to this point. Therefore, the Lord put a great divide between himself and Israel. He said, your cries will no longer give you access to my deliverance, at least not yet until you get some things right. And so in this moment, the cry, let me say the cry, the cry was lost to God's people, the nation of Israel. And from this moment on through until our opening, actually to Judges 13, when we're introduced to Manoah and his wife. Manoah and his wife would have been around during this time in their history when the cry was lost. When really you don't see in any significant manner God's people crying to the Lord in desperation for help. And perhaps this is what influenced them. The nation had gone so far from God and his commandments. Everyone was doing what seemed right in their own eyes. Sin and lawlessness was abounding, and because of it, passion waxed cold, and apathy reigned. Enter Manoah and his wife. Israel went for this period of time without any significant mention of crying out to God. They recognized that they were so far gone, and and perhaps they just felt that to cry out was in vain. It was wasted breath. After all, God said, cry to somebody else. And for whatever the reason... The Bible doesn't say explicitly. But Manoah and his wife, they sat there, barren, seemingly contented, evidently not worried about carrying on their lineage. Silence and no cry. I would just like to say in the middle of this message, I think it behooves us that we don't ever become contented in a barren state. And if I look around in my life, and, and I feel that things are dry when I look around in my surroundings and I feel like there is no life. It must render within me a sense of holy discontentment. Let me never be satisfied with spiritual deadness and passionless days and passionless services. Let me never be contented with barren wastelands and dry wildernesses. I must not be content. I must not lose my cry. I've come to remind us simply tonight that if we ever find ourselves personally or collectively perhaps in what we might call a spiritual slump or, or if, we ever, if we ever look around and, and we're not contented with the spiritual atmosphere, we must find our cry and we must lift it to the Lord and say, God, I'm not satisfied. God, I want more. Let this barrenness be gone. Let there be a spring of living water that breaks forth. I need it, God. Hear our cry. It may not be popular, and maybe nobody else is, but I challenge you tonight, become that one voice lifted. Become that one catalyst that changes everything. Because it is the cry of a hungry heart that breaks through barrenness and allows life to spring up again. We see it again and again in the type scene of the barren womb. There's a cry and God brings life. It's the cry of desperation that breaks up the fallow ground of hardened hearts and allows the potential for God's word to bring life. We must not lose our cry. When things are dry, there is a temptation to believe that there's nothing that you can do to change it. Well, my contribution, what, what difference would it make anyway? I'm just one voice. I'm just one life 
what power, what influence would me crying to God in desperation make and have? Seems insignificant to do it and to go at it alone. But that is where you're wrong. Because just one voice lifted in a cry of passion-filled desperation can make all the difference and can break something in the spirit realm. I'll prove it to you. In the Old Testament, there's a prophecy, the last one in your Old Testament to be exact. It's found in the book of Malachi. In this book, it ends with this prophecy that God will send a prophet like Elijah to come and stir the hearts of God's people. And between the time that this prophecy is given by Malachi and when it actually finds fulfillment in the opening pages of the New Testament, there is a period of 400 years. You know what they call these 400 years? They call them the silent years. Let me say the silent years. It's not that nothing was happening in the story of Israel. They were still existing History was still plodding along, but there was no scripture being written. And so, again, scholars, theologians, we've called this and put the banner over these 400 years, the silent years. Seemingly nothing going on. Silence. One might say barrenness. No open word from God. No, no, no revelation from God for his people in written word. But do you know what ended the silence? And you know what fulfilled the prophecy at the end of the Old Testament? It wasn't the cry of the infant Messiah, baby Jesus, being born in a feeding trough in a barn in Bethlehem. But the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and starts preaching in the wilderness with a passionate cry, it breaks the silence and stirs something up and allows the ministry of Jesus to move forward. John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 19, please. And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John had been preaching in the wilderness. And, and he didn't invite them out. The crowd came to him. They wanted to see what this crazy camel hair clad locust eating prophet was all about. And so they rush to the wilderness and a crowd is drawing and maybe attendance in the synagogues in the temple temple was dwindling and so the, the priests sent their posse out to the wilderness to see what in the world was going on. And so John confessed and he denied not, verse 20, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They said, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not Elijah. Are you that prophet? He said, no, I'm not that prophet. And then they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And here is what he said. He said, I'm not the Messiah, and I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet that you're speaking of, but I am the voice of one who is crying in the wilderness, in a dry place, in a barren place. I'm lifting my voice, saying, Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. You know what broke the 400-year silence and ushered in the ministry of Jesus. It was an individual willing to lift their voice in a passionate cry of desperation in a wilderness. And can I tell us tonight, you know what will break the barren season that you find yourself in? It's the same thing. It's the cry of desperation. No matter the wilderness, no matter the depth of the dryness, no matter the barrenness, it is the cry of the people of God that makes all the difference.
Come on, somebody shout right now. Somebody shout it. The cry, the cry. I wish you would lift your voice in a cry right now. Come on, in the overflow room. Why don't you just lift your hands and lift your voice and say, God, I don't want barrenness anymore. God, I'm tired of the dryness. God, I'm tired of the wilderness. Let a spring come forth from one that cries out to God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Come on, anybody not content with the barrenness? Anybody a little bit discontent with the thirst in your life? Anybody wanting to cry out to the Lord today? God, we need you. We need you. We need you. Just one more time. Just lift your voice in this atmosphere. Do you feel that shifting right now? There is something that happens when God's people cry out in desperation. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Come on, come on. Just another moment. Lift your voice. Lift your voice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We must never grow content with barrenness. We must never become content with no life. It is imperative that we find our voice and we restore the cry among God's people. And if we will restore the cry, that spring of living water that revives and refreshes it will spring forth and break out in our midst. It'll spring forth and break out in your life. But the catalyst is a cry, a cry of desperation. And so you may wonder, well, what happened in Manoah and his wife? They ended up conceiving despite their lack of a cry. Well, it would seem that in an act of mercy, because God was in covenant with his people, he intervened in Manoah and his wife's situation and he caused her, conceive, caused her to conceive Samson. It wasn't due to desperation, but, but again, rather, it seems that it was God who was mercifully, mercifully providing a deliverer for wayward Israel. And Samson was far from perfect. You already know that, right? I mean, he, he was always wanting to marry the enemy and hanging out in vineyards and touching, you know, the carcass of lions and just, just kind of weird stuff. You know, he, stuff he wasn't supposed to do. He, he had some issues. That's Samson. Far from perfect. And in fact, his leadership, Scripture would tell us, when the angel was speaking over Manoah and his wife, declaring that they would conceive, the angel said, uh, essentially, that, that Samson will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines, seeming to indicate that you know, his ministry would only go so far. And so Samson, he had some major flaws, and, and he find, found himself more often than not giving in to his fleshly lusts. But, but despite his deficiencies and his downfall, Samson contributed something significant to Israel. After many years of God's passionless people not crying out to him for deliverance, Samson helped to restore the cry to the nation. Again, his ministry was only the beginning of deliverance for, for Israel. He did not complete what he was commissioned by God to do, perhaps because he was so you know, prone to his lustful proclivities. Right? He just went after his, his, his 
The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, that was, that was what he was all about. But Samson helped restore the cry. It was one of his greatest contributions. And so Samson, he finds himself in, in Judges chapter 15. He's, he's a mighty man of God now. And, uh, and, you know, he wanted to marry this Philistine woman. And then the father gave her away to somebody else. Then he comes to collect, you know, or to marry, marry his fiance. And then the father's like, oh, I gave her away. And then Samson's mad. And so he ties foxes' tails together, puts torches in them, and they burn the field down. And then the, the, the Philistines are really upset. And they say, who did this? And they said, Samson. And then they said, it's because this guy gave his wife away, his fiance away. And, and so then they kill these people. And then Samson's even more mad. And then, then he goes. You got the backstory now? <laughs> okay, thank you. And so then he goes and he takes a jawbone of a donkey. And he kills a thousand Philistines. And this is our opening text. And Samson, he says, with, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And, and so it was, after he had finished speaking, that he throws it down, calls the place Ramoth-Lehi. But then in this moment, Samson is thirsty. It's a dry and barren place, and there's no water anywhere. And, and he probably had heard along the way somewhere how, how Jehovah... God is a provider, Jehovah Jireh. And he thought, maybe, just maybe, God will hear me in my moment of desperation. And so he did something that nobody seemingly had done for a long time. And Samson cries out to the Lord. And he said, God, you've given me great deliverance. But, but now are you going to let me die in this barren, thirsty position that I find myself in? Are you going to allow the enemy to win in my life and to overcome me and to take me captive? And so God, he hears the cry from his desperate servant and God causes water to gush out where, where Samson had thrown the jawbone down. And when Samson drank the water that came forth because of his cry, his spirit returned and there was a personal revival in Samson, and he called the place the spring of the one who cried out. Samson learned firsthand what can happen when you cry out to God from your desperate, barren position. Literally, that Enhakor, the name he called it, it means the fountain of one calling. Water began to flow in a dry and barren place simply because one man was willing to cry out to God. Samson was revived because of a cry, but more than revive his own life. Samson restored the cry to the nation of Israel. And I hasten tonight to a close. Music, if you would join me. Even though Samson's barren parents had not even called on God to give them a gift of a child, Samson called on the Lord. Even though Samson had never heard anyone else among his people cry out to God, most likely. Samson lifted his voice and Samson confronted the Lord with his thirst. And even Jesus on the cross confronted God with his thirst. I thirst. There's nothing wrong when we confront the Lord with our thirst. God, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. But he said, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you shall be filled. There's nothing wrong with confronting God with your thirst. There's an invitation. Hey, if you will just cry out to me, there is a fountain of one that cries, that calls. There is a spring that can come forth that will revive and restore and refresh 
from the one that cries out. And one man's desperate thirst that prompted a cry, it restored it to the nation. I wonder tonight, is there anybody that's thirsty? Is there anybody that has grown dissatisfied with barrenness? Barrenness is not meant to bury us. Barrenness is meant to be a catalyst in us. Something that should spur on a, a holy discontent and yield a cry. We must restore the cry. Don't allow the enemy to rob you of your voice. There is nothing that the enemy would love more than for you to give him what God desires most, and that is your voice. Death and life are in the power of your tongue. Your voice, your words. It is the center of spiritual warfare. Did you know that? There's power in a lifted voice, a cry of desperation. Restore the cry in your life and watch as the spirit like water begins to flow and bring life once again. There's something powerful when you say like, like those of old time, give me children or lest I die. I am so fed up with the barrenness. Samson would have one more opportunity to cry out to God at the end of his life. He had, you know, gotten mixed up with Delilah and gave away one too many secrets, you know. His hair is shaved, shorn, shaven. The Philistines take him captive. He loses his strength, gouge out his eyes. I mean, he's a wreck. It's a bad place. A barren, dark, deep pit in his life. But in the midst of his blindness, his weakness, and the ridicule of his enemies, Samson remembered that one time that God had satiated his thirst and saved his life. He remembered perhaps the only lesson that he truly learned about the nature of God. I mean, again, Samson was far from perfect. He got into all kinds of messes. He did all kinds of things he shouldn't have done. But perhaps one of the most powerful lessons he had truly learned was the power of crying out to God. And in the midst of this darkest hour, he wondered if maybe, just maybe, it would work again. Although perhaps still focused more on himself than on his people or on his God, Samson called out, out to the Lord one more time to avenge him of his two eyes. And Samson prayed for God to remember him and to endue him with one last bit of strength to topple the enemy and use his life. Judges 16, 28. And Samson called unto the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord God, Remember me, I pray, and strengthen me, even only this once, that I may be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Hear my voice one last time, God, and work through me. And Samson grasped those two pillars, and he waited for his prayer to be answered. And God came through again. And God remembered Samson. Samson willingly relinquished his own life to defeat the enemy, praying, let me die with the enemy Philistines. And as Samson strained against the pillars, God granted his request. He heard his cry, and 3,000 Philistines, more than 
than Samson had ever killed in his life died in one day, and Samson perished with them. But the legacy that he left, it was there in Israel. In spite of the many foibles that made up his life, he restored something vital to his people. No, he didn't cause the walls to fall like it did for Joshua. And no, he didn't run through a troop or leap over a wall like David did. But in praying for God to grant him the strength to push over the pillars and topple the temple of Dagon, Samson restored the cry to the people of Israel. And you will see from there on after that God's people begin to cry out to God again. And God begins to hear them. And God begins to raise up deliverers. That's the power of a cry. We must restore the cry. Can you stand together with me? Let me just remind you what the psalmist said. The Lord is nigh. Come on, we always said it, and it's good theology. God is as close as the mention of his name. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. To all that call upon him in truth. And he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their cry and he will save them i wonder is there anybody thirsty in the house tonight is there anybody that would say you know what i'm in a dry and barren state but i i just believe what that preacher was saying i, I just believe that if i will lift my voice and if i will cry out in desperation to god then like it happened for samson i believe that springs of living water can break forth i believe that there can be a refreshing i believe that revival can take place if we will find our voice and if we will restore the cry of god's people Come on, is there anybody thirsty? I wonder if there's any desperate people in the house of God tonight. Come on, in our overflow building, I wonder, is there anybody thirsty watching at home tonight or watching wherever you're watching from? Is there anybody maybe in barrenness, but you say, I'm not staying here. God, deliver me from this place. God, deliver me. Break the silence of the wilderness. God, speak and move and minister. God, let your spirit flow. Hear the cries of your people, God. Come on, somebody, just lift your voice. Just somebody lift your voice in this atmosphere. Come on, just for a moment, just the voices, just the voices. Come on, you don't have to be perfect to cry out to the Lord. You don't have to have it all together to cry out to the Lord. There's something about desperation. There's something about a holy discontent. I am thirsty, God. Ha! Oh!
Come on, we just need to let that flow in this house tonight. I wish you would just let your voice, just, just set aside all intimidation, set aside all fear. And I wish you would just launch yourself into a spirit of intercessory prayer. I wish you would just yield yourself to that sense of desperation in your life and just become discontented with everything that is dry, with everything that is barren, and say, God, let living water come in my family. Lord, where my children have gone wayward, Lord, let living water begin to flow in their lives. Lord, where there's dysfunction and discontentment, God, whatever is wrong in my life, in a dry and weary and barren place, hear the cry of your people, God. Hear the cry of your people, God. Oh, 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 Shut up, Bokor,